0: Does your startup need to get a SOC 2 report to close big deals? Or do you already have a SOC 2 report and want to make it easier to maintain year after year? Vanta has built software that makes it easier to both get and renew your SOC 2. With Vanta, you avoid anxious auditor interviews, and you don't have to capture hundreds of screenshots proving that you are SOC 2 compliant to your auditor. Companies like Lattice, User Testing, and hundreds of others have successfully gotten their SOC 2 reports with Vanta. Equity listeners can redeem a $1000 off a of Vanta subscription by visiting vanta.com/equity. That's vanta.com/equity.
1: Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm here with two of my favorite people in the whole world. We'll start on my right, Natasha Moscarenas. How are you doing?
2: Last week, I was a 3 out of 10. This week, I am a 3.3 out of 10.
1: It's been, it's been a trying period for everybody, I feel. Danny Crichton, how are you doing? What's your out of 10? I'm doing great. I mean,
0: oh. how can it not be better? We want a number out of 10, though. You need to distill that down to a decimal for us. I'm up one point, which is a lot better than Tesla's stock these days. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Tesla had a rough rough end of the week, it looked like. Well, I'll follow suit. I'm a 4.7 out of 10. So beating Natasha, trailing Danny, but doing better than Musk. And with that, I think we can kick off. We are going to start with a funding round this week. We're going to flip it around, not start with public markets, put that at the back of the show, kick the early stage stuff to the front. Just because there's been so many IPOs and SPACs lately, we all know we're a little bit tired of it. So we're going to start with the more fun stuff
0: and then get to the homework at the end. When when Alex says he's tired of it, what he really means is he's been yelled at on Twitter. Yeah, I'm not tired of it at all. That was empathetic. I am
2: very tired of it. So any equity listeners on my side, welcome. We're starting with private this week and we're going to kick it off with Climax Foods, which raised a 7.5 million round to create a meat alternative. It's scanning for different proteins that exist in animal food products and trying Mm -hmm. to replicate them in a way that doesn't use animal protein. It's starting with cheese.
1: Uh, Which, you know, to be clear, I know a lot about because I'm a cheese eater and I have many opinions about cheese. So I think they're taking on something pretty hard because if you say like, here's a faux Gouda, I'm going to be like, I've eaten pounds of Gouda. I know exactly how I like my Gouda. I buy expensive Gouda because I like it. And I, I'm gonna go for it. I think my opinion after reading through this round is that this is the future, and I'm just gonna be a little bit slow to accepting that. Like I think the 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 meat explosion has happened. Cheese will be next, and we already do nut based dairy, so you know I think that's already happened. So
0: I'm excited. Yeah, Danny, what do you think? How's your diet gonna change? I like cheese. I you know I grew up in in Minnesota, which is <laughs> you know next to the cheese capital of of the country. Look, I mean meat replacement has done really well, right? We've seen uh, what was it beyond meat? Is it? I forget the official term. There's Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, exactly. And unbelievable, um, I can't believe it's not butter, cheese. So I'm looking forward to a whole selection of, of I guess, meat protein, animal protein replaced products. Uh, let's expand the grocery store a little bit beyond cows.
1: This was One Ventures, Manta Ray Ventures, S2G Ventures, Valor Siren Ventures, Prelude Ventures, Artis Ventures... Index Ventures, Luminous Ventures, Canaccord Genuity Group, I believe, Carrot Capital, and Global, Global so Founders Carrot Capital.
0: Carrot Capital, I don't know who they are, but they're the only ones that seem relevant in this context.
1: I mean, they are on <laughs> brand for the, uh, the plant-based food. Look, look. They should just call themselves, I can't believe it's not cheese. And then we could have avoided not making jokes about their name for this entire last two minutes. And I think that would be a more appropriate <laughs> title because we struggled uh, during prep for this uh, this particular bit of I was going to
2: say, we don't talk about the future of food often on this show, but I think it's something we should be looking into more because we saw Impossible Foods do a meat alternative that people are kind of taking seriously, but there's no way that they're gonna, it's going to start and stop with Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. So it'll be cool to see the next wave approach things that haven't been done before.
1: Yeah, on that point, I, th- I really think that's interesting to see how people talk about not eating meat, not just because of animal cruelty points, right. but also because of climate change points. And the the founder, I think it was Oliver Zahn, uh, in this piece that Sheba wrote for us, uh, talked about the, co- the, econ- the, I can find the word, environmental impact of the meat industry and how it's uh, simply enormous from a carbon footprint perspective. So I think that, I would have scoffed at five years ago, like, oh, who really cares? But now I, I think it's actually a relatively large chunk of the uh, population.
0: Well, my guess is it's actually also a great market, right? Unlike meat where meat is meat, right? You're eating beef. Beef has a certain flavor, certain texture you expect in a hamburger. You know, cheese has a huge spectrum of diversity, right? You have hard cheeses, sharp cheeses, soft mm-hmm. cheeses, everything in between. But I think there's a little bit more flexibility in terms of producing a product that seems like something that it should exist in the cheese spectrum uh, oh. compared to meat. So not Gouda per se, it's going to be kind of
1: Nuda, and then it'll be a new Nuda. cheese. That The moment <laughs> yeah. I said it, it didn't come out well. I was, I, yeah. You can go copyright that right away. I'm not going Maybe to. I'm going to pretend like I didn't say it and move us on <laughs> to CapChase. CapChase raised a $4.6 million round to, quote, deliver fast cash to SaaS companies. Danny, I read this, but I want you to talk us through uh,
0: why we need one more way to uh, tinker with SaaS incomes yeah so if we're starting with the climax with climax foods i think cap chase is really kind of the the opposite of that like so th- this is a cash cycle conversion optimization startup yeah and I, you, you would be totally excused for giving up on this podcast unsubscribing and moving on to i don't know like cat video.com or something like that hopefully that's not a porn site you're such a um, boomer but... i love it <laughs> no, cat videos but... tiktok <laughs> tiktok well tiktok's only got like what 17 days 16 days left to go on the on the ticker so yeah, tick, uh, hopefully, tick, tick, a buzzer beater, <laughs> a buzzer beater is coming shortly. But um, look, Capchase uh, is is taking advantage of a new market, which is there are now hundreds, if not thousands, of SaaS companies making revenues. And one of the most common challenges with most SaaS companies is you have customers that uh, sign you know multi-month, multi-year purchase agreements. So they'll say, "Hey, we're going to spend two thousand dollars a month for the next two years. That's forty-eight thousand dollars across the total contract, what's known as the total contract vol- uh, value or TCV." The challenge is is you can't get that money up front and startups want money up front to pay for payroll cash flow growth etc today uh, most startups go and get venture debt they get what's known as a accounts receivable line cap is trying to make it a much more frictionless and pain-free way to get an ar line and the cool thing is here so if you
1: sell a contract for a hundred thousand dollars instead of getting that over 24 small chunks you can sell it to cap chase effectively get 95k of that up front They take the 5K. It's not super cheap compared to certain interest rates. But certainly if you're a startup that wants to avoid taking on long term debts or wants to avoid taking on capital to preserve dilution, I think it's cool. And Danny, I don't even really care how well CapChase does. I just like to see the explosion of different options for SaaS fundraising, given how it's kind of the de facto startup business model these days. Super cool. to the innovation there. And I presume the competition will lead to an aggregate lower cost of capital, which is a net good for all startups that participate. In kind of the new digital economy
0: yeah well certainly and uh, look a lot of SaaS companies don't have any options right when you're super early and you're your credit risk banks won't lend so what most startups do early on is they actually give huge discounts to customers to do uh payments up front something mm. on the order of 30 to 50 percent of the value as a discount so that's really where cap chase is competing against is those early customers where if there's a signed contract look you, the, the credit risk is really on the customer's part is the customer going to pay so you know they're really evaluating you know if xerox signs a two-year contract is xerox going to pay for two years through the end of that. And if they are, it's a pretty good credit risk.
2: And I just want to add, too, I feel like branding is so important here. They called themselves the non-dilutive revolution, which I'm not going to make fun of because truly non-dilution is music to founders' ears, smart founders' ears in the during the pandemic and kind of going forward. You saw ClearBank kind of use a similar pitch, right? The anti-VC angle is really interesting for startups. ClearBank's different, but it's just another example of startups joining this and kind of hinging themselves off of the anti VC route.
0: In many ways, you could say that they are the solution to non dilution, and that is a chemistry joke, <sighs> and not one we get often on this podcast. But uh, that's enough about uh, cap chase and, and cash cycle conversion optimization. Because again, if you haven't unsubscribed after hearing that <laughs> phrase, um, something is very wrong with you. But but, but Natasha, you're going to talk about Invision. Which is not the envision we normally talk about, but En Envision,
2: <laughs>
0: well, En Envision.
2: Danny, you had a great transition, but let me just make it clear: people thought we were going to do cheese puns. I thought we were going to do cheese puns, but instead, we're doing SaaS securitization puns, and that makes me love you guys even more. Um, Alex, <laughs> that's though, what you
0: pay for equity. <laughs> everyone Um, pays what it's worth
2: i love that i was (laughs) like anti-equity on equity but i feel like that just defines me okay
0: that's fine it's okay we have haters on the show i mean you know just read our twitter feed
2: i um i read our reviews on apple podcast the other day and that was a mistake
1: that was yeah i i should have told you don't do it they're all it's only people who are mad
2: i was in a bad mood and i was like let me just give myself more things to be mad about anyways anyways good news is that alex wrote a great piece about student-led accelerator envision talk to us about what you found out alex
1: okay so <clears throat> a couple months ago some people reached out to me via email just completely cold didn't know them no shared context that i knew of at the time and they're like hey we're a couple of recent grads we're working with a bunch of students we are building a virtual accelerator aimed at bringing lots of diverse founders into the mix we're going to give them 10k and non-dilutive capital we put together an awesome program we've got a killer Uh, advisors and we're going to run them through this eight week thing and then have a virtual demo day and i was like how old are you and they're like we just graduated I was like oh when i was your age i was partying um and so i was very impressed with them and i was curious to see how it would go as an experiment so i covered the the early stage and i was waiting to hear from them kind of at the end and of course they reached out and they were finishing up and we caught up and they got 17 companies through their accelerator and they're already planning their next one for October so they can do a 10-week program before the end of the year. So students who are taking the first semester off due to COVID, whatever, can do this. They had some just simply insane, insane stats. Of the 17 companies that they they worked with, one third of the founders were Black. Around one in five were Latinx. And more than 75% of the companies had at least one female founder, which just goes to show that there are diverse founders out there if you go and bring them in. And I do think the virtual element allows for a much more diverse crop to appear, even though we didn't see that, Natasha, in the Y Combinator data, which we can talk about if we want to. But I'm just super stoked. People that I know best there are Annabelle Strauss and uh, Eliana Berger, super smart people. And I was talking to a local Providence entrepreneur yesterday. We were doing a socially distanced coffee, my first for work since March. And it turns out he knows both of them. So it turns out we actually did have a shared network. I didn't know that at the time. But yeah, I'm just impressed. I love seeing people that I still put in the young bucket, even though I don't mean that in a dismissive way at all, do very impressive things and shake things up and show that all the problems that these more established players are having with diversity are are maybe more self-inflicted than market-based, is my is my read.
2: This is definitely where I'm finding hope right now. And there's the conversation we've had on this podcast before about how now anyone can become an accelerator. Is that good or bad? This is an, is, is an example of why it's good in some ways. And on the point of diversity, I feel like explicitness matters so much. Intention matters so much. And if a couple of students who don't have the same network as insert big name VC firm here can invest in diverse founders, then anyone can. And a VC I was talking to the other day was like, we need to stop doing the narrative of that it's hard for underrepresented people to get capital because it is the best time for underrepresented people to get capital. It's not it's not easy, but it's also like gonna shoot people in the foot earlier than they even try if we keep pushing this idea that there's no one out there looking for looking for underrepresented founders to invest in.
1: Yeah, one more quick note about the Envision Group, uh, just because I can shout this out because we're on air. If you go to envisionaccelerator.com, e n v i s i o n accelerator.com dot com slash portfolio, you can see all the companies and kind of what they do. So if you want to see some really really early stage studenty led companies. Uh, to see what the kids are thinking about uh take a peek. Again, not being dismissive, being super stoked about this really cool stuff. And I think Natasha, you are correct. And with that, we are going to turn to a topic that I can't ignore anymore. I've always ignored EdTech. I thought it was dull. <laughs> I've never liked it. And <laughs> against and Natasha, education. i no, the kids these never are
0: learning things. I mean,
1: I did want to drop out of every school I've been in. I never actually pulled it off. But uh it turns out that this COVID this COVID boom is not a COVID bump. It's a COVID explosion in the ed tech world. A, a you know, a wave of stuff. And so we have a number of things that I'm going to now shut up and let Natasha walk us through. So, Natasha, edtech, please.
2: Yes, I'm going to go fast with the news bits and then talk about what the most interesting part is. So, Owl Venture, which is an edtech-focused fund, got a 585 million para funds that it closed fully over Zoom during the pandemic. It's also invested in the most valuable edtech company in the world, Baiju's. So, you can connect the dots there on why it's doing well. Horse Hero, which is a profitable unicorn. Became a unicorn a couple months ago, raised 10 million. Then, then raised an extension round, quote unquote, of um, 70 million. Um, And then Juni Learning is a live tutoring startup that was coming up against some huge players. They closed a 10.5 million Series A by Forerunner Ventures, a consumer-focused fund, um, and have 10 million in ARR compared to 2 million of AR in March. Now, the thing I want to talk to you guys about too is like. We talk a lot about the ed tech boom, but up until this point, it was very much like a boom from consumers, a boom from parents, kids, et cetera, et cetera. Now with schools reopening, we're seeing the boom and what some people are calling a second surge from schools starting to invest in ed tech platforms. That does not happen. People do not pitch to schools. It's the easiest way to die as an ed tech startup. And so it's been cool to see the boom kind of transition from being solely consumer to actual B2B.
1: So yesterday I caught up with the CFO of Jamf, which is the Apple MDM company. And I was talking to her about the ed tech market in particular. I'm like, what are you seeing? Is it is it, is it you know, explosive? And I think if I recall, I can't find my notes while we're recording. So it's, it'll take too long. But the, the gist was that it's going to be a kind of a sustained thing because not all schools are starting at the same time. And given the delayed and kind has of staggered rollout, uh demand that she sees, which is mostly software for Apple devices that are given to students uh, so they can participate in remote learning, is going to be staggered. So I think when we discuss the, the boom, Natasha, it could have some long term legs. And so I think this this wave will persist for multiple quarters, which is enormous for the sector and probably part of why we're seeing such fast uh, investments now to get ahead of those later higher valuations.
2: Definitely. I mean, I think a part of me when I put my reporter hat on, which should be always is I'm like, OK, what's the post pandemic trend, though? I'm sure there's hype in ed tech. There's definitely hype in ed tech. But for example, like VR labs for science class. I was talking to Owl Ventures and they were like, it doesn't have to be scientific to get investment interest from us now. Like that is still interesting to us, but we're also still interested in the Q&A services like Quizlet. If Quizlet was pitched to us now, we'd still be interested in it. And hearing that kind of balance and that it's not just only, you know, VR being applied to education as the next wave of ed tech startups also gave me more faith in like what a post-pandemic ed tech space looks like.
1: You know, looking at this, uh, the set of news that you brought up, the thing that really exploded in my head more than anything was the size of the course hero extension from a $10 million series B to an $80 million series B, which is, I don't think anything I've ever seen before. Extensions tend to be, you know, equally sized to the preceding tranche at most. right? Right. So this was an insane thing that implies to me that investors are, I don't know, excited about this company and what it's doing. So, it implies a, such a demand surge that I don't think even when it does abate post-COVID, as you were discussing, it's going to go down to zero. I think we're at a new higher plateau or higher plane of growth for these companies because a bit like how I don't think conferences are ever going to go back to exactly what they were. I think there will always now be a hybrid digital element to global tech conferences or pharmaceutical, whatever it is, uh, given that we now have the, the tech experience and know-how to do that. I think education is going to be very similar. There's going to be more of a remote component to it that lets it be more accessible to more people. And that means higher demand for this stuff net long term, even if the growth rate descends to a more historically normal level,
2: I think. Right. With Course Hero, for example, it's you know total addressable market. They thought it was 1 million students. Now the CEO says it's more than millions, right? And so I think they're starting to realize, to your point, Alex, that it's much bigger than even they thought.
1: Yeah. I mean, when your TAM triples. Uh, that unlocks some some venture capital opportunities for you, Danny. If if you're a VC, right, and the company that you're investing in all of a sudden thinks their tan goes up by a factor of three, you would want to give them money ASAP so they can go and spend it on S and M, and
0: and go after that increased market, right? Maybe. I mean, I you know, I, to me, I, I'm very excited here, right? I I think that the the coronavirus pandemic has 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 scrambled the entire education market, right? everything from individual tutors which is what we we're talking about with the last company to the infrastructure that actually empowers classes to the fact that a lot of folks are moving online from offline you know all that is really positive from a technology perspective i think the question is is ultimately where are these budgets going to come from you know we're talking a little bit about this transition to b2b well school districts have no money because taxes are way down universities are being you know are crippled from state you know budgets foreign students not paying full fees tuition's going down you know so i think a huge amount of it is still focused on consumers I think that a lot of these technologies are going to end up substituting for existing kind of infrastructure. And so I see a lot of cannibalization. Uh, you know, Rafat Ali, who was talking about events and kind of the collapse of the events business, you know, brought back this quote from, from 20 years ago about how, you know, analog dollars become digital pennies. And I think we're going to see something uh, very similar in the education space where, you know, the, the $100,000 tuition and cost of living to go to a, a business school, let's say, for a, an MBA annually is going to be replaced by a $1,500 course online that's roughly equivalent. And that to me is going to be the magic in the next couple of years, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be real winners and losers. So I think the TAM is definitely increasing. I would buy into that. If I was an early stage investor, I would be just counting my laurels. This looks like a huge win. Uh, You got some wind in the sails in the later years of a company. Um, If you're investing now, that's trickier to me, right? Because there's a ton of companies already on the map, um, dozens that are already years in. Um, you have a bunch of new ones coming on. I, you know, I'd be more careful at the seed and A. This is why Danny famously gave up VC to become a long-term
1: value investor on the stock market.
2: <laughs> uh, that level of,
1: of caution. I, I want to, uh, before we move on to other funny rounds, because there's a lot more to get to. I want to point out that I was initially terrified when Danny said, um, you know, traditional dollars become digital pennies uh, or whatever that, that quote was. And I then I the realized. Other way. Uh, analog analog with- dollars become digital pennies i was so I was so close to getting that right and yet so wrong uh i want to point out how like i was initially terrified I'm like oh that means revenue will be smaller but then i realized the opportunity that unlocks like i i have not gone to business school because the opportunity cost of not working for two years plus the cost of business school made the math look really crappy just like i'd have to like have like a like a 50 percent income jump and i want to stay in my profession so like it's not going to happen so i never win but if it was like take three months off pay 5k do it online or whatever it is and you know just spend all my time doing that i would definitely do that just take a leave of absence and go do and get an mba if it was cheaper right and therefore more cost effective so
0: i think cool. there's a cool silver lining terms of access and and the flattening and the access is not just for the u.s right it goes internationally so people around the world can take the exact same classes that you could in boston or new york so or, or vice versa so to me like there's this huge globalization that's going to kick in huge flattening affordability is coming back i mean it's amazing to see in education
2: and any stigma that there maybe would have been with online credentials or online degrees is effectively gone now because everything is an online degree.
1: Yeah. Also, I read a really great thread today about how parents of kids in elementary school are watching their children learn, learn on Zoom or, as it were, not learn on Zoom. Probably the funniest thread on Twitter I've read in some time. All right. We're going to put a stop to this. I'm sure EdTech will be back next week because EdTech is the new SAS, apparently, and we can't get away from it. A quick public service announcement from the Equity crew.
2: We are bringing Equity live to Disrupt, which will be going virtual this year.
1: Yeah, and so we are going to be recording live at the investor reception. So if you have an investor tier ticket, we will see you there. If you don't have one and you are an investor and you want to come hang out, grab one, use the code equity, save 100 bucks.
2: Even better, anyone who joins us will have a chance to play a game with the Equity crew. We're going to pick two investors, friends of the show probably, Put them in the hot seat and ask them some questions live. And
1: that's going to be, I presume, some sort of comedic catastrophe. But having a game on the show has been a goal of mine really since the beginning back in 1473. So I'm very glad that at long last we're going to have our own mini game show. Uh, oh, and don't forget if you're not an investor, the actual episode will come out right afterwards. So it's not going to go down some exclusive route. So we'll see you then and uh, we'll see it disrupt. But we are going to talk about Patreon and its enormous new round. Natasha, can you tell us just like the, the broad strokes here? And then I want to dig into the, the, the trends behind it.
2: Yes. Yeah, so Patreon is our newest unicorn. It raised $90 million and is valued at $1.2 billion. And it last raised a year ago at $60 million at a $600 million valuation. So it's a pretty, really healthy bump in terms of valuation.
1: Yeah, I was impressed by the, the effect of double in the single year. The disappointment, though, that I got uh, while reading the coverage of it was that they didn't really share a lot of growth metrics, but we do know now that there are 200,000 creators on the platform, which are the kind of the people that you pay money to, and quote, more than six million fans. Now, this is the the barest of minimal growth metrics that you can provide for a round of this size. So I want to say to everyone at Patreon who decided to not share it, boo. I say to you, sir, and ma'am, boo, and boo again. Because this is crap. We can't really do a lot of work here. We can begin to estimate GMV by multiplying six million times some, you know, per monthly amount, and you can kind of tinker with that up and down. But Uh, And I think the trend here that we're seeing is that because the music industry fell apart and so many other kind of creative show up in person things slowed, we're seeing a lot more people effectively try to transition from the physical world into the online world. Bands like Trivium are experimenting a lot with streaming and uh, on demand concerts and comedians are doing kind of specials via via these new platforms. And I'm pretty encouraged by it. I wonder how much we can replace of the old world kind of the Nuevo Patreon.
2: I love that Patreon has shifted from being just a marketplace to kind of this suite of tools. Um, I've talked about Issa Rae in this podcast before. I hope you guys have done your research since I last mentioned her. But she uses Patreon in a way that I find super inspiring. And I'm, I'm not just fangirling here. I think it's a really cool use case. And we've talked about the creative economy a couple episodes ago. But she kind of has created this ecosystem for creators to maybe all come in because they like Issa Rae. But then network, do offshoots. And it's a really cheap membership, I think five bucks a month just to get access to this this community of black creators. And so to me, I feel like Patreon having that kind of strategy will probably beat companies that are new to it because it already has a really solid built in creator network to, to the small metric point we got. And so that is like the future of Patreon in my eyes, creating these small communities where people can just kind of go crazy underneath the similarity of maybe one major creator.
1: Yeah, we're seeing this in the 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 one thousand true fans idea. I've seen it described as the one hundred true fans idea. In this case, Issa Rae has just under two thousand Patreons at five bucks a month, so she's doing about ten k a month, about one hundred and twenty thousand a year. And she
2: doesn't need the money, and it's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, you are awesome for not needing the money and just kind of using that as a place for other people.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think the idea that we're going to disintermediate the space between artists of varying stripes and creators of varying stripes and people who appreciate them is something that we're seeing across the world. I mean, Substack is an example of this. It, it strips down the the publisher gap between an author and the reader and makes it incredibly personal more intimate, not in a weird way, but in a very comfortable way. And I think Patreon's the same thing. And you know, other things like Twitch and I'll throw OnlyFans in there because everyone talks about it these days seem to be doing the same thing across different content varietals, you might say. And so if Patreon has caught this kind of lift, I'm not surprised to see the valuation gain. Uh, As a final point here, curious to see how its economics are. I think to me, it's probably seen some great growth, but I'm not exactly over here thinking that it's all of a sudden burst towards profitability. And so I would put Patreon in kind of the traditional unicorn model, lots of capital, big valuation, good growth, probably losing tons of money. And with that, can we talk about some IPOs, please? Fine. I'm getting some nods. Okay, cool. Danny and I are both old and partnered off, but Natasha, have you ever used Bumble? (laughs)
2: I did when I was single. I used it. It was very empowering because I believe it makes the like women ping first. And so that was cool, I guess, compared to other dating platforms, I guess.
1: Because women have to initiate conversation versus men. So it kind of puts it, it, it gets rid of more creepers, I think, was, was the sure. idea.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I was always someone who messaged first on all apps anyways. So I didn't need it. I just it was interesting to see which, what kind of people I would find on the app.
1: Cool. I, I put you through that really kind of awkward gauntlet and I'm sorry, because I wanted to point out that Bumble had a twist on the market yep. and what they've done is taken a different approach to the dating game. And if you had told me a couple of years ago that Bumble was going to go public, I would have kind of laughed at you and said, Oh, what went wrong? But in reality, we know how big Tinder is. We know Tinder had like, I think it was 1.2 billion in revenue in 2019. So the dating market with subscriptions and kind of one time boost payments and so forth is enormous. And it's fun to see there's more than enough space in the dating market app world to support, essentially, Tinder as a public company via some other, you know, arcana. Uh, And Bumble going public
0: possibly in 2021. Well, and what's amazing here is, you know, most of these companies are run by IAC. You know, one of the classic rules of venture capital is you never back a dating app because only one buyer in the market will ever buy a dating app. So it's actually incredible to see outside of match which is i believe also owned by AAC, to have a, a an actual dating app go public and potentially debut i mean it hasn't happened yet i haven't filed as far as we know just a leak um, uh, in 2021 so that'll be a huge breakthrough and so, so the folks who kind of double down against the you know wisdom conventional wisdom of silicon valley on dating are you know presumably are going to do pretty well on that
1: yeah i'm excited to see the churn numbers because it's not like regular churn you don't like get over the product and say you don't want it anymore, but you do eventually, you know, hopefully find someone to keep, I think is the idea. Well,
0: I, I feel like, remind me, because I don't use Bumble um, because women aren't going to talk to me for for multiple reasons, but I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> it's the haircut. <laughs> it's always the haircut. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious because isn't Bumble the one that's trying to do a little bit more around professional networking yes. on top of dating? Natasha, you, you're you our resident Bumble expert.
2: <laughs> I really am not, but I will take one for the team. Bumble yeah has kind of this business friend functionality and you know i always joke that i would love to have a dating app for friends would i think tinder had tinder like group before where you could like match as a group and like meet which sounds weird but like i did it in a friendly way a couple of times and so bumble i think that would be a really cool thing i'm excited to see out if it does file if it does go through the ipo it still really could not Um, it, I, I think that it's going to get acquired and this was just them trying to,
0: you know, well, they could get acquired by IAC and then my whole like line is going to be totally effed up. It wouldn't be the first time IAC screwed me over. (laughs) Fuck you, match. (laughs) Sorry. All right.
2: I'm not going to dive into that too deeply, but no Bumble. And then even good RX, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit. I think those ones are my two bets that they're leaking to get acquired. I just have a feeling there's no way that everyone's going public this much.
0: Well I love the fact that we had six IPOs in one day and then there's been no IPOs since for like two weeks. It's been a dry spell. Well, I mean I, it's like it's like a hurricane category five followed by drought. Like five eight business
1: days ago, nine business days ago, like six companies filed. And we've heard we've had news since. I don't think it's that bad. I mean I, we, we just asked the bankers
0: to spread them out so that we're more conveniently like helped. That's yeah, all i
1: You know, bankers don't tend to give a shit what I think, sadly, and they don't like to tell me things. So, okay, quickly then, two more IPOs. One, Wish has filed confidentially. Wish is an e-commerce application famous for selling you things that are enticing yet disappointing. I think is how our own Connie Loises <laughs> described it in her piece, which I thought was hysterical. I love
2: that. <laughs> so I think Connie. that's drop
1: shipping in a nutshell. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. The thing about Wish is that even though we giggle at some of its merchandise, it is an enormous business. It's raised oh, $1.6 billion, according to Crunchbase, now worth $11.2 Billion dollars, you're going to do this last round. Tons of active users, 70 million, give or take, across about 100 countries. Big revenue numbers, I- interesting Gmv model. I- I- I'm fascinated by this. My question is, how unprofitable is it? And that's my, you know, I'm just, I'm sure it's growing quickly, but I, I just, because eh. we all know e-commerce trades at a lower multiple to SaaS, given a different margin structure and kind of business model. And so, if it's also super unprofitable, it doesn't quite have that high margin revenue to kind of boost it up. So I'm curious to see how it can do, but. I did a little math magic and eBay trades for about 4X sales. And you can easily see if they do more than 2 billion this year, you can get to around 10 billion. So I can kind of see the valuation working out, but I'm very curious about it. And then uh, Natasha, GoodRx, uh, why are they dual tracking?
2: So GoodRx filed for IPO at the end of August. It's been profitable since 2016. So that's already makes it rare and newsworthy. Founded in 2011, it's a drug discount coupon provider. The reason I think it is going acquired actually has no science behind it or rationale. I just have like a gut feeling that it's going to get acquired because I feel like the market for that is doing well right now. Hymns is kind of tangentially related. And so I imagine Hims acquiring GoodRx. I just have a feeling.
0: Well, I guess the last coupon company we talked about was Honey, right? Wasn't Honey bought by PayPal, you know, last year for what, a couple billion bucks? You know, I, I think we have to give some context for our international readers. So if you're in not in the United States and you don't understand what is going on here, in the United States, we have this system where drugs cost thousands of dollars, unless you show a piece of plastic, which they cost like, what, 25 bucks on the copay or something like this? Or Very less. Very complicated. You know, I, I had a friend yesterday who was just tweeting out that he he went to to one of our local pharmacies, quoted 240 bucks for, for a pharmacy prescription, went on GoodRx, got a coupon in-store. Went back to the 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 checkout counter and paid 40 bucks for the exact same thing. It really is like the most incredible, crazy arbitrage, weird coupon business that we've ever seen, and it's mostly a function of just how messed up the the American healthcare system is. And so, you know, it, what what's amazing to me again, profitable for multiple years, it's really a, a marketing ploy, if you will, right? You know, well, most of the pharmacies in the U. S. are built around the notion of using pharmacy to drive store traffic to other more profitable parts of CVS, Dwayne Reed, Walgreens, beauty, health and beauty, et cetera. And so they actually don't care. They're not looking to make a huge amount of profit on the pharmacy business. They're just looking for you to come into the store. And the beauty of pharmacies is you have to come into the store repeatedly and regularly to go do so. So I actually think it's a brilliant model. I think the question is, if they are dual tracking, who would be the acquirer? Uh, I mean,
1: CVS, Walgreens, the Amazon pharmacy push. I mean, I can see I can see, I can see buyers there.
0: there are. Yeah, I can see Amazon. I can see Amazon. Uh, can but see with that.
1: a 19% profit margin, you know, they're just an incredibly good business. I mean, they make a lot of money. They're growing. I mean, I I knew about them because I watch old person television, so I've seen their ads. You know, and I just want to point out that if you if you found Danny's anecdote about prescription drug prices uh, insane, let's say you're in Canada or some other civilized country, just go look how many medical bankruptcies there are in the United States, and then listen to our politicians say we have the best healthcare system in the world. And the dissonance you see right there is the exact rot that is destroying my country. All right. Now, moving on. A couple of things we're just going to shout out, and then we're going to let you all go. But if you want to dig more into the SPAC IPO direct listing dance, there's been a couple of good pieces out that we've been talking about as a group that we think are are worth sharing. So the first one is, in defense of the IPO and how to improve it by Andreessen Horwitz. Danny, it's long. It's very good. Uh, I thought it was delightful. If you were to summarize it for
0: our, our friends here, how would you how would you gist it down? I think, I think what the, the key economic fact that they're trying to remind people is, you know, the, the price you see on a trade is based off the last trade and the size of that last trade. You know, in a, in a market, let's say for Tesla, let's say there's exactly one share of Tesla available. That, that share might trade for thousands of dollars because there's maybe some Yahoo on Robinhood who read Wall Street Bets who's like Tesla 100,000 and is like, I'm going to buy for 10K and that's the only share I can buy in the entire world. The problem is, is that as soon as more of those shares come to market, you have supply and demand, demand, there's no demand beyond that one person for that one share at 10,000 demand quickly declines. And so what they're sort of getting at is like, look, you know, we talk about pops and how terrible they are. But what you're really asking is, is like, is there a market for 15, 20% of companies float, you know, in the IPO process, who's going to buy it? And, and what is the universe of buyers who are willing to, to purchase there? And so it's less exclusive. Is sort of their mentality. There aren't a lot of long-term hold buyers who are going to pay, you know, a premium for one percent of the shares. Everyone in the IPO has to get the same price. And so yes. even though there might be a couple of retail investors who would buy a couple of shares at a higher price, the reality is is that there aren't, you know, people who are going to buy a fifth of the company all in one go. The flip side, you know, the part that I think was a little—you have to read between the lines of where the flaw is—is is like. But part of the challenges is is you're just not aggregating the full demand of the marketplace. There are, you know, millions of people who could potentially buy shares on the public markets. You could aggregate those shares up in, in front. You could even give scores to those folks and ask, how long do most people hold their shares? If people, you know, hold their shares for five to 10 years... Maybe they can get a slightly lower price or something like that. There's a lot of ways to get more demand, which would raise those those IPO prices. So I thought it was a great article. It's about a 20, 25 minute read. If you want a whole background on the economic theory of IPOs and how it all sort of fits together with direct listings, it's a good place to go.
2: And and I'll add too, like, I think we so rarely see disagreement within tech, at least tech Twitter. And so seeing Andres and Horowitz post this after our Kind of obviously subtweeting Bill Gurley. Mm. I'm sure no, like, no bad blood, maybe bad blood. I don't know if there's any. It was refreshing to me as someone who's relatively new in covering tech. There cannot be just the noisiest people that we give attention to. And so I very much like loved reading this post and was happy it was written and think there needs to be more people that aren't afraid to disagree with Bill Gurley.
1: Yes, but Bill Gurley's Twitter account is very powerful. We don't want to be shouted <laughs> at by, saw, by, his, by his minions.
2: I saw, um, This is an aside, but I saw a tweet the other day saying like, great, you have 100,000 followers or 100K followers on Twitter. Join the club, like actually say something important. Not about Bill Gurley, but it's like, I don't know. I think it's like we give a lot of undue importance to platforms. That's not a hot take.
1: I, I just, I love how the more followers, someone gets the shittier their Twitter account gets consistently. Like the, when you have like a hundred followers, you're tweeting about like fun things, personal things, whatever. And like 10K, you're beginning to get more professional. And then a hundred K, I feel like all you do is tweet out platitudes about business. Like there is no time in business. There is only, you know, grit, hustle, drive. And everyone's like, oh, it's the future.
2: The future is cheese, not The meat. future
1: is is faux gouda apparently or fuda, as we call it uh and then there's no, I think
0: it was called nuda not Fuda. i was
1: trying to rewrite the historical record <laughs> is
0: actually also a startup uh that also supplies or used to supply all the food in our our offices so we need uh, a go. button somewhere. but i will say going you know going back to to bill gurley i mean you know gurley has made it his mission to make direct listings sure. a very common thing as we talked about last week and nyc has gone I, I guess preliminary approval to allow a capital fundraise with a direct listing nasdaq is on its way um, so I, I think what actually is interesting here is just how much innovation is actually taking place. And and frankly, the innovation is coming because of the direct listings, right? Because there is this sort of new model coming in that people are now have pioneered with, with Slack and with Spotify. People are getting better about fees. People are making sure the book is not as oversubscribed. People are making sure the IPO process is more efficient. And so to my mind, this is a great sign that the market is just going to get better over time. Yeah.
1: Better cost of capital for everybody, more innovation, more different paths to the public markets. And as Andreessen Horowitz hoped for, a blending of the public private divide. We're going to close today with a note that news always happens during the show after we've written the, uh, the note stock talk and talked about it. And the news right now, as we sit here Thursday afternoon, Eastern time, is that the NASDAQ is off 5% after a long positive run. We are seeing big tech take a whacking, we are seeing SaaS sell off. Things have changed all of a sudden. So by the time you hear this later today, we'll see what the final results are, but it's certainly something that we would have noted if it had happened before the show started, which it did not. And on that note, everybody, thank you. We're back Monday morning. This is Equity. Goodbye.